Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. You have your Bibles. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. Today we're going to wrap up this series of messages that we have called Trending. We've been kind of springboarding out of a passage in Acts chapter 15, and we'll get back to Acts chapter 15 actually next week. But as we walked through this series of messages, we, we talked about how in Acts chapter 15, there were these questions that came up in between the churches, the church that was in Judea, the church that was in Antioch. They were trying to figure these things out. There were two big questions. So they met, they had what was called the Council of Jerusalem, and they had to decide on two things. The first one was, how is a person saved? And then the second question was, how does a saved person live? These were the two questions they were considering. And, and we've looked at this for the last five weeks, I think. And so I, I don't want to you know, go too, too long on this, but I think it's good for us to review what did we find out there. So at this Council of Jerusalem, they had to answer these questions. The first question, how is a person saved? They decided that a person is saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And it's not just what they decided, it's the truth from God's word. It's how we live, that a person is saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And we've talked about that. But the second question was a big one, not just how is a person saved, but then once you're in right relationship with God, how does a saved person live? And we've looked at a passage of scripture, Acts chapter 15, that has kind of been the framework for what we've, we've talked about these last few weeks And they wrote a letter to this church that had these questions and said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden with you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. That's how they ended their letter. Now, for us, there's some things there, and we've talked about this, that don't make a whole lot of sense in our time, in our culture, in our context, but it did to them And today, what we see is principles that we can pull out of that that help us to answer that same question of how does a saved person live? And so we've used a tool these last few weeks to help us know when you have to make a decision, when you're headed in a certain direction, when you have to kind of reconcile what's going on in the culture around us with the truths of God's word, we needed some kind of metric, some kind of guideline to help us know how do we determine how do we think about these things. And so we've used this model of what we've called a GPS, helps us to make these decisions in our direction. This GPS serves as a compass for navigating the trending topics of our challenging times. It's a compass for navigating the the trending topics of our challenging times. And so there's a word for each one of those letters, GPS. The letter G stands for, anybody remember? Oh, I haven't wasted my time. That's great. Yeah, God. And we ask the question, does this glorify God? The P stands for people. And we ask the question, does this discourage or does it encourage other people? And then the S stands for self. And we ask the question, does this cause me to be closer to or further away from God? And in using this GPS to kind of walk through the, 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 the topics of our time, we, we talked about how we relate to idols in our lives. We talked about some yellow light issues, places where God's word isn't necessarily green and go or, or red and stop, some uncertain things. And we talked about those yellow light issues. Last week, we talked about sexual morality and what the scripture says about that. And at times, I think all of us have probably recognized this hasn't been the easiest series that I've ever preached. In fact, I got done last week and thought, man, I can't wait for David and Goliath, right? I mean, that's just kind of the thought that comes to your mind. But these are important messages. 
because they're right where we live. And so we're going to wrap up this thought today with, with one that I think will help us to kind of consider all of this and maybe piece it all together. Because here's the big question that comes through this. If you're living in some interesting times, and we are, if there's challenging things happening and we deal with these trending topics that show up and come and go so quickly, and we want to know what does Scripture say about these things, ultimately we have to ask this question as followers of Jesus Christ, as Christians, what makes us different from the world? Because when you read God's word, you find out that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are supposed to be different from the world around us. You've seen that, right? And so if that's the case, what makes us different? The, the scripture speaks of the world. It's making a reference to the fact that there's a difference between those who are believers and those who are not. It's saying that those that live lives based on the foundation of God's word might see things differently than the culture or the world is the scriptural term for that, that we might think differently from the world. There's a difference between the world and the church. And if you wonder about that, go right to the words of Jesus. John chapter 17, verse 15. He says, my prayer is not, and he's, he's speaking to God the Father here, and Jesus says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Have you ever heard the phrase that Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world? You ever heard that? Like we use that, but what does it mean? Like we, we live here, this is our location, but the Bible also says that we're not to be conformed to this world's standards. We're not of the world, even though we're in it. Paul helps us with an analogy that I think really gives us some insight into this. He says in Philippians chapter three, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. See, even though my passport says I'm from the United States of America, my salvation says that my citizenship is in heaven. Ultimately, ultimately, my allegiance is not to any person. It's not really to any nation. My ultimate allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I look forward to the fact that someday I will live forever in heaven with him. That, that, that changes things. That gives me a different perspective. So with that in mind, we have to answer the question then, how does a saved person live? The Apostle Peter wrote two letters that we have in the Bible, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, catchy names, right? And he wrote those two letters, and when he wrote them, he was writing to a church very similar in some ways to today that found themselves on the outside of the culture. In fact, their culture was completely unchristian. It was Christ-less, and he was saying to them, this is how you live your life in a culture that's very different from you. And we're going to look at some of the things he said today and watch this passage when he, was, when he was contrasting this. And what he was saying to them was that God's kingdom would last, but this world will not last. He says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Same question, right? How does a saved person live? What kind of people ought you to be? He says to us, you ought to live holy and godly lives. That word holy is an interesting one. It's one that we sometimes, I think, take out of context. It's one that we sometimes misunderstand. What does it mean for us to live a life of holiness? In these challenging times with all these trending topics what does it mean for us to be holy and i suppose a lot of people can ignore that question but we live in holy toledo 
So we probably should pay attention to it, right? The question is, what does it mean to be holy? Let me give you a bit of a definition. In fact, a couple years ago, we did a series of messages called Exiled, where we walked through the book of 1 Peter. And we talked about some of these things there. And we said that to be holy means to be set apart from ordinary or evil use and devoted to glorifying God. Something is holy, kind of two components to it. On the one hand, it's set apart, it's separate. And on the other hand, it's committed or devoted to what God would have for it to do. And we've, we've looked at this truth before, but the faith we live out will separate us from the world we live in. When you live out your faith in our culture, in our world, you will find that at times it will distinguish you, it will separate you from others. The faith we live out will separate us from the world we live in. So here's the question. In a world of ever-changing, trending topics, how do we live a consistently holy life? To answer that question, we're, we're gonna look at some teaching from the Apostle Peter. So look at this with me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He's gonna help us answer this question. What does it mean to be holy? He says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. The, the, the New Living Translation says, live such good lives among your unbelieving neighbors that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We're gonna look at, at three aspects of this idea of holiness today, and we're gonna use our GPS model to help us. We're gonna talk about God and holiness. We're gonna talk about other people in holiness. We're gonna talk about ourselves in holiness today to give us an idea of how this biblical concept of being holy fits into the world in which we live today. I think it's gonna help us to kinda, you know, tie up the loose ends from the last few weeks. So let's jump in with the first thing. When we run this through the grid of GPS, this idea of being holy, what does it mean? Let's talk first about God and holiness. What does God think of this idea of holiness? See, we've been asking this question all along. Does this glorify God? But when I think about living a holy life, what does that mean? One of the things that, that through all of this, I've, I've been giving a lot of thought to is I think for many of us, we need to clarify what we even mean when we talk about being holy. What does this idea of holiness mean? And I don't think we can do it unless we get a clear perspective. We need to see ourselves the way that God sees us. We need to see ourselves in this aspect of holiness the way that God sees us. Here's, here's an issue I have. Oftentimes, I'm more handsome in my head than I am in the mirror. Do you know what that means, right? I look in the mirror sometimes and I go, oh, that's it, huh? I was on this big conference call a week or so ago. There was like 30 people on it. So I'm not leading it. I'm just kind of taking part in it. And so it's all this video conference call stuff. So you can turn your camera on or off. 
whether people can see you or not, because I had mine off, because I'm just, I'm taking part, I'm not really doing anything, and I didn't want to see me, so I didn't think they wanted to see me. And at one point, I clicked the camera on, and when I did, I saw my face, and I went, oh, do I always look that mean? Like, it just, it was this look. Sometimes you need help to get a, a clear perspective on yourself. Sometimes we think too much of ourselves. Sometimes we don't think enough. And what God's word helps us to do is to get that clear perspective. We need to ask a question today. What makes you holy? If you're gonna get a clear perspective on yourself, what is it that makes you holy? We were talking about this with our staff. And I was expressing that as I thought about this, I think I've always had this perception that I'm made holy by what I do not do. It's, It's the things that I don't do that somehow make me holy. I grew up in the Assemblies of God, that's the fellowship of churches that we're a part of here at Calvary, and we're what you might refer to historically as a holiness denomination or a holiness movement. So we, we, we have a history of wanting to be a people who are holy, and so for me at times, that meant what I heard was, if you're holy, you don't do this. I shared the first week of this series how my grandma kind of put these expectations. Hey, you don't go to movies, and you don't play with playing cards, and you don't dance. Anybody remember why you don't dance? If you, don't dan- if you dance, you get pregnant. That was the idea, right? Okay, so you got, you got to steer clear of some of these things. So I express this to our team. Holiness, I've always felt, is what you don't do. It was interesting because one of our pastors says, you know, that's, that's interesting because that's the opposite of, of how I've always thought. Because in the church that I grew up in, the idea was you were made holy by what you did do. You were holy if you went to church. You were holy if you went to confession. You were holy if you served in this way or if you gave this kind of money. And she said, I've always felt that holiness was based on what you did do. It was interesting, this contrast, that I thought holiness was based on what you did not do. She thought holiness was based on what you do do. And if you take note of this, you recognize that both of these things are driven by punishment, aren't they? That if I do this or I don't do that, I may have consequences that I'll be punished for. And they're driven by trying to please someone else. I was driven to holiness because I didn't want to disappoint my grandma. Some of us were driven to holiness because we want the church to think of us in a certain way. And all of these are ideas about holiness that don't line up with scripture. See, you are not holy because of what you do not do. Now, if you're going to live a holy life, there will be some things that you will not do but that's not what makes you holy. And you're not holy because of what you do do. Now, if you're living a holy life, there will be some things that you'll do, but that's not what makes you holy. When we look at scripture, here's what we see. You are holy because of who you are in Christ. You are holy because of what God did for you, not because what you did or did not do. You are holy because of who you are in Christ. Look at what Peter calls you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He's contrasting the people of God with the people of the world, those who believe in Jesus and those who do not. And he says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. Aren't those powerful names? And did you notice that none of them is based on anything that you did or did not do? They're based on your relationship with him. And see, this is a game changer. If you you get anything today, 
Let this click in your brain. Holiness is based on a relationship. It's all based on your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Real quick, let me unpack those four titles for us because I think it'll help us. And for some of you, I think it's really important that you internalize some of this today because it might change the way you think about your relationship with God. First, we are a chosen people. We are a chosen people. If you're hearing this message, whether you're in this room or you're seeing it on a screen somewhere, God wants you to know that he desires for you to be one of his people. He has chosen you. This isn't random. This is something that God has very clearly stated. He cares about you and he has chosen you. And some of you need to, you either need to write this down or you need to say this to yourself that when it comes time for you to make a choice or a decision, when you come to a crossroad, you need to remember, I am chosen. God has chosen me. I mean, I, I very clearly can remember being in the third grade and getting invited to my friend John's birthday party. It was the first time I got invited like to a, to a slumber party, sleepover birthday party, and guess who didn't get invited? A whole bunch of other people. <laughs> guess who did? I did. That was cool for me because I always... I always got picked near the end in gym class. Anybody else with a therapeutic amen? Anybody? <laughs> right? So I got chosen to go to my friend John's party. And it makes you feel a certain way, right? Some of us know what it's like to be chosen. Some of us know what it's like to not be chosen. I think all of us have had those experiences. But what about when we are chosen? I mean, it means something. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, very next verse. Watch what Peter says. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you got picked last in gym class, but now you've been picked first. What, that's the CGV, the Chad Gilligan version. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Look, for some of you, you need to remember that holiness starts with this. You've been chosen by him. Then he says this, we are a royal priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. Those are loaded words. That word royal means you're not ordinary. You come from a special line, a special house, a special family. It has dignity attached to it. And because of that, you have a special purpose. Some of you, when it comes time to make a decision in your life and you're running it through this GPS filter, you need to remember, I am called to a purpose. Your life is not normal. Your life has dignity. It has value. You are a part of a royal priesthood. And what does a priest do? A priest is a mediator. A priest is someone who takes God to other people. And he says, you have been called with great dignity and with great value to represent God to the world around you. You have a mediating role between God and others, which really comes into clarity. Remember when we talked about the yellow light issues a couple of weeks ago? And we said that there's times when your life affects other people's lives. I told the story about how when my neighbors have, have killed the weeds on their side of the fence, it killed the grass on my side of the fence. Anybody remember that? Look, how you live, royal priest, affects the people in your world. What happens on your side of the fence affects those on the other side of the fence. We need to be very mindful of that when we make decisions, that God has chosen us, that he has called us to a purpose. Here's the third thing he says here. He says, we are a holy nation. Remember that word holy? It's not normal. It's set apart. It is separate. It is special. 
In fact, that was the distinction that the, the people of Israel had in the Old Testament. When you read those, those first few books of the Old Testament, you get there and they're called to be a holy people, a separate people, because the other nations were just chasing after whatever they could find. They were putting their confidence in false gods and worshiping nature and just trying to figure this thing out. And God said, look, you're not like that. You only worship me because you know that I'm the only real God. You are holy because you're separate. You're set apart. You're different. And when we live a life of holiness, we are expressing not that we're following rules, but we're expressing that we have a relationship with the one who created us. One of my favorite kind of illustrations of this idea of holiness is, is my wedding ring. I wear this wedding ring for a reason. Now, here's a, here's a question. Does this wedding ring make me married? Yes or no? No, if I take it off, am I still married? Rhonda says I am, right? If I take it off, I'm still married. So why do I wear it? Not because it makes me married, but because it tells the world that I'm married. It says, look, I belong to somebody. I'm committed to somebody. My life is set apart because I love somebody so much that I've chosen to live my life for them. So that means there's certain things I do that I wouldn't do if I wasn't married, and there's certain things I don't go chasing after because I'm married. I've committed myself to something. Now, I don't have to wear this ring, but do you know why I wear this ring? Because I want the world to know that she belongs to me. Praise God, right? out of my league. This is a powerful picture because you live a life of holiness not because you have to but because you love God so much and he loves you so much that you choose to live your life in a way that shows other people that you're committed to him. Does that make sense? See, it's not about the rules that we attach to holiness. Holiness is not about religion. It's about relationship. I don't live holy in my life because I have to. I choose to let Christ live through me. I choose to live a life based on the principles of scripture because I love him, because of the relationship I have with him. Does that make sense? Good, because it can get tricky. A Couple of weeks ago in Florida, the police in a city got a phone call from a lady. She said, look, I was in the line at McDonald's and the guy behind me in the drive-through line kept bumping me with his car. Like kept bumping the back of my car with his car. And I don't think there's, I think there's something that's not right with this guy. So the police go out, they, they pull him over, they find him, and this guy is clearly drunk. Like he's, he's gone. And um, so they, they have him get out, he, he does the breathalyzer test, and he, he, they have him do it twice. What he blows is almost two times the legal limit. So like this, this dude is just trashed, he's wasted. And they're like, sir, why are you drinking and driving? He goes, I'm, I'm not drinking and driving. They look over, there's an empty bottle of bourbon in the passenger seat. And they said, sir, why are you drinking and driving? And he admits, he says, yes, I've been drinking all day and I know I'm probably drunk, but I haven't been drinking and driving because I've only been drinking at stop signs and red lights. He says, I've never drunk while I was driving. And this is craziness, if you think of what he's saying. Now look, I am not making light of this situation. I just want you to see how ridiculous that is. To say that you weren't drinking and driving because you didn't drink while you were driving, that you only drank at the red lights, 
That's craziness. That's completely taking the whole law out of context. And we do it with God all the time. Those moments when the Holy Spirit speaks to us and says, look, are you living in the right way? And we say, look, this, this bad habit I have, it really, it, it affects no one but me. And God, those words that I speak, it's, it's just once in a while, it doesn't really matter. And those thoughts or those actions that we're quick to go, well, God, I'm really not doing anything that's hurting anybody else or really doesn't matter that much. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us and says, yes, but if your relationship with God means something, you would choose to live a life that's different. Does that make sense? That's what it means to be holy. It's not just following the rules. It's a relationship that we have with him. And the reason we have that is because we love him and he loves us. And the next time you make a big decision, you may have to say to yourself, I am loved by God. And because he loves me, and because I choose to love him, it changes my direction. Because we are a chosen people. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. And we are God's special possession. Scripture says that we are God's special possession. If you're familiar with the King James Version, you know that it translates that's a little, a little bit different. It says that we are, we are a chosen people. We are a royal nation. We are a, a, a holy, uh, we're something, right? We're, we're, uh, we're chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation. And this is how the King James Version says. It says that we are a peculiar people. Have you ever heard that? There's some Sundays that I've said that's true. Yeah, you see certain people and you're like, they are peculiar people, right? You know what I mean? But what's the idea? The idea is that there's something special that belongs to God. Not like he owns us or in a negative way that restricts us, but in a way that gives something great value. We've been privileged to, to go visit as a family the, the Billy Graham Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you've never been there, it's really kind of a really a cool place to kind of see what, what, what God has done through him and through his ministry. And when you get there, kind of get out of the parking lot, and you first get up there, there's this house that's off to the side there. And there's not a whole lot to it. It's just kind of an old house. And you might kind of look at it and go, well, there's, a, there's an old house here. Until you get a little closer and you realize it's not just an old house. It's a house that they moved there. It's a house that they put there. And it's not just some house. It's the house that Billy Graham grew up in. And now all of a sudden, it's not just any house. It's a special house. Why? Because of who the inhabitant was there. Because of who it belonged to. Because of who lived there. All of a sudden, that house has different value. It's not just any house. It's that house. Look, you're not just any person. You're that person because you belong to God. You are, it says, his special possession. You matter to him. And because of that, you're not just anybody. You're somebody and somebody who's called to live a life of holiness. Now, why does any of this matter? When we talk about this idea with the letter G, right, we say, does this glorify God? And we often go, ah, does it make God happy? Like we think about it real quick. But run this through the filter of what God says about you. It changes the question. Does this glorify the God who chose me, called me, loves me, and has made me his own? When I ask it that way, when I think of the question that way, when I realize how much value I have to him and the relationship that I'm in with him, it challenges me to live a holy life. I ask a different question. Does this glorify the God who chose me, called me, loves me, and has made me his own. Can you see how that would change things? Good, because now I have tremendous value to him. 
And with that value, it causes me to see things differently. It calls me to live a life of holiness. That's, that's the first thing that we look at, holiness and God. And then the second question that we ask, number two, if we're gonna think about this idea of holiness, what about holiness and people? What about holiness and other people? Our question all along throughout this series has been the, the things that we do, the choices we make, the things that are happening in the culture around us. Does it encourage or discourage others? And Peter raises a really interesting point in this. See, God looks at you and he sees you as his chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, a special possession belonging to him. But the world won't see your holiness in the same way. See, the world might misunderstand some things. Look at what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. He says, live such good lives among the pagans. I like that, living a good life. I like that. That though they accuse you of doing wrong. What? I'm, I'm gonna do a good thing and they're gonna think it's the wrong thing? Peter points out very clearly here that when you're living a life that is holy before God, when you're living a life that is set apart to him, when you're living a life based on the fact that he chose you, called you, loves you, and made you his own, that the people around you might not understand that, it's possible that in some way, your holiness may be misunderstood. I've, I've been giving a lot of thought to this lately because I guess this whole series has caused me to kind of step back and, and kind of redefine some things in my own life and in my own thinking. In a certain sense, I've, I've kind of been redefining holiness and trying to grasp even what's going on in the world and culture around us. Can I, can, would, would you bear with me for a couple of moments? Because I just want to think out loud. Is that okay? And see if this, this just kind of makes sense because I'm trying to sort this out. I, I want to give you an illustration. Look, our lives as followers of Jesus Christ is to be built on the truth of God's word, right? Yes or no? You agree? Okay, so we're, we're to be built on the truth of God's word. So let's just visually put this here and say this. God's word is never changing. It's always true, and it gives us a foundation for our life. Amen. To the sense to say that we, we need, if we're going to live a life that has value before God, we need to live within the, the borders maybe of God's word. Like if you've ever played basketball or soccer, you know that the court or the field has, has an out-of-bounds line. Do you know what I'm talking about? And if you have possession of the ball and you want to try to score or you want to try to play or you want to try to win in some way, you can't go out of bounds because when you do, the game stops, right? You have to, you have to call a foul. You have to say, look, that, that play is dead. You've got to come back inside because the only way you're going to win, the only way to find victory is if you play within the bounds of the quarter of the field. Does that make sense? So if you and I want to live a life that has purpose, meaning, and victory, then we've got to live our lives within the boundary of God's word. Are you with me? Because this is critically important, right? So that then becomes the foundation of our lives. But that's not necessarily how the culture lives. It's not necessarily how the world around us functions. In fact, let me, let me give you a picture. And I need, I need a couple of volunteers. I got two people down here. All you got to do is, Corey, you want to come up here? Yeah, come on up here. And, uh, and, and you'll, uh, oh, you're not even messing with the steps. All right, yeah, that's fine. Younger guys. Okay, um, <laughs> one guy over here, one guy over here, if you will. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you this sign, and I'm gonna give you this sign, and yeah, come on over a little closer, and, uh, 
and we'll be good. Okay, so we've got these two things. Over here I've got what we're calling unbiblical legalism, and we've got over here what, what I'd call unbiblical looseness. Moving in just a little bit closer here, guys. And I want you to picture this. Our culture or our world often kind of swings like a pendulum. Do you know what a pendulum is? Kind of like what would be inside an old-fashioned clock, kind of moves back and forth. It doesn't stay in one place. But the foundation of God's word, where you want to live and find victory, gives you the context, not because God's trying to hone you in, but because God knows where the sweet spot for living is. But that's not what culture does. Culture typically swings to one side or the other, or there's parts of culture that are constantly in motion. Now, I just would say, kind of from my background, kind of from the way that I, that I grew up, this swing of culture oftentimes, and, and this may have been where the church has been in the past, has swung in this area of what we would call unbiblical legalism, that it takes the truths of God's word but swings it so far to an extreme that at some point it goes outside of or says more about something than what God would say. Like, for instance, if you rewind, let's just say maybe the 1950s, in a lot of churches of our background or tradition, if you were, a, if you were in that church in those days, they'd say, hey, things we talked about, you can't go to the movies. If you were a lady, they would say, hey, you shouldn't wear makeup or you shouldn't wear pants. That was, that was you wear something, but just not pants in church, right? You'd have to wear a skirt or a dress, that kind of thing, right? And that was where that culture had swung. Now, look, I'm telling you this. There's nowhere in this book that says, thou shalt not mascara. It's not in there, <laughs> Right? But wasn't that where the church's culture was? Yes or no? Anybody? It's true, right, what I'm talking about? So what happens over time is that pendulum begins to swing back the other way more towards biblical truth, which is a good thing. I think in a lot of ways we've found, especially as a, as a, as a movement ourselves, we've found a place where we're in line with biblical truth. You know the problem with a pendulum, though? The problem with the pendulum is that when it's at this extreme and it starts swinging back this way, it doesn't stop in the sweet spot. Where does it go then? It goes to the other extreme. And man, we're watching it in our culture to where we've gone from this legalism, and we use the, the term legalism because what happens is legalism begins to tighten things in a way that goes beyond what God would have to swing over here to a place where we begin to loosen things beyond what God would want. Does that make sense? Like, I'm testing this out. You gotta help me here so I know, so I know that I'm making sense here. And what's happened is we get to a certain point where we go, well, you know what? I, I can take on some more of the thoughts of the culture when I get over here. And maybe it shows up in the words that we say. The little differences in our practices or in our speech or in the way we treat other people. One of my big concerns, and we talked about this because this is one of Paul's concerns, and we saw this last week in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is that as culture has swung, we've opened up ourselves in a lot of ways to take on the, the sexual morality of the culture even into the church world that has swung beyond what God would have on the foundation of his word. Let me, let me just use this. Instead of like a like a traditional pendulum. You ever seen one of these guys? They call them Newton's cradle. I'm putting it here on top of my Bible because culture usually likes to place itself above God's word. You sound that to be true? And this represents the culture. And what happens is oftentimes when culture's up here, swinging to this extreme, then it goes back and forth and swinging to those extremes. And did you notice that all those extremes are outside the foundation of God's word? Do you see that there? And I chose this over a regular pendulum because it gets messy in the middle. And isn't that what life is like? <laughs> and oftentimes when something's up here at this extreme, and then it swings to take two. Oftentimes when something's up here at this extreme, and then it swings to that other extreme, what happens is there's things that are happening that are outside of the border or the boundary or the foundation of God's word. And here's what I want you to see. When the culture swings to either extreme, what is in the middle will seem out of place. 
Because all the attention is out here, right? And those of us that are right here, it'll seem like we don't fit in. It'll seem like we're not right. It'll seem like we don't matter. And this is really important. Because last week, when when we talked about what Paul says about sexual morality, we said this, that when the world acts in a way that is outside of the truths of God's word, we should not be surprised by that, right? Because of course the world doesn't look like the church. Because the world doesn't believe like the church. So why would they look like the church? We should not be surprised by that. But at the same time, when we're here based on biblical truths and we see the extremes of culture and we feel left out, we shouldn't be surprised by that either. Because when the culture is at its extremes and the whole world says this is the way that it should be and we're here in the midst of God's place, the place where it's his sweet spot for life, the place where we can play within bounds and find victory, when the rest of the world is out here, we shouldn't be surprised by that either, right? Right? (laughs) Which means we should stand firm on the truths of God's word, that we should hold on to what he says to us. When that swing is taking place in culture, if I was totally honest with you, this, this is a concern for me. In the 1950s, we saw the church out here. My concern is that in this 100-year swing in the 2050s, we're going to find the church out here, or maybe in 2018, right? And we need to be aware of this and hold on to the truths that we find in God's word. Can you give these guys a, a big hand for holding a paper? Thanks, guys. Charles Spurgeon said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Spurgeon died in 1892. If that was true then, how much more true is it today? Here's here's my encouragement. And, And it might not just be the culture, it might be your culture. It might be your family. It might be your workplace. It might be your school. When you're here and you see what's happening out here, don't you give up. Don't you give in. You hold on to the truths of this book because it's in these borders that you're going to win. Does that make sense? You hang on to those truths because you are chosen and called. You are loved and holy. You belong to him, which takes us to the third thing. Look, we've talked about God and holiness. We've talked about holiness and people. We want to, number three, conclude with holiness and self. I've been talking to some friends off and on lately that own either a motorcycle or like a classic car. And I'm kind of fascinated by this and talking with them and going, okay, now tell me the rules for this. Because in Toledo, you can't ride your motorcycle or drive your classic car all year round, right? There's seasons where that thing stays in the garage. A friend of mine said, he says, look, um, here's, here's, here's kind of the rules. My Corvette stays in the garage until I know there's been a good spring rain and all the salt is washed off the road. Does that make sense? Then I'll bring it out. And the first time they put that salt down, that car's going back in the garage. Because that car, that, that possession that I have that has so much value to me, it's not my ordinary everyday thing that just goes out in the world. It means more than that. I keep it in the garage because it's set apart, because it's special, because, not to push it too far, but because it's holy. And I don't want to let the crud of the world contaminate and ruin what is so special to me. God looks at you, 
And he says, there's a lot of crud out there. And I want you to be separate. I want you to be special. You have great value. You mean more to me than that. You are holy. So my advice, stay in the garage six months of the year. <laughs> it's not Peter's advice though. First Peter chapter two, verse 12. These first four words, they just get me. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Do you know what he's called you to do? You live such good lives that when they see you, even if they don't agree with you, they see the God who called you, chose you, loved you, and made you his own. They see that in the midst of the darkness where they find themselves, that there's a hope and there's a light. And even though at times they may be offended by you, I'm gonna tell you, when you live in that way, they're gonna be attracted to you. And my encouragement to you, this whole idea of holiness, we could talk about rules and we could talk about regulations. I just like the way that Peter says it. Look, just live good lives. Like, do your best to live in a way that when people see you, they can't help but go, there's something special about you. You know why? Because God has called you, and don't take this in the wrong way, but you're better than that, right? You're, you're better than some of those things that might pull on you and draw on you because of who God has called you to be, not because you're superior to anybody else, but you belong to the one who's the creator of all things. So when you come face to face with that decision, when that trending topic's knocking on your door, when you're tempted to step out of bounds of what you know is God's sweet spot for your life, you remind yourself that he's created you and you're better than that. In those moments when you have to make a tough decision, you take the path of integrity. When you're at home alone or with your family, you make sure the same person that you portray yourself to be in public. When the crude joking starts, you be careful about what comes out of your mouth. When the world says, look like this and party like that, you choose to glorify God and not satisfy yourself. When those yellow light issues are right there in front of you, you ask, does this glorify God? Does this encourage others? Does this make me know Jesus more? When you have a chance mm, to just crush that other person through vengeance or an argument, you decide to love instead. When you're in that nasty situation, with a family member, a coworker, you take the high road. When that temptation is right there in front of you, you ask the Holy Spirit to help you and you honor him. When you're making those sexual choices with your life, you do it based on God's word and not the culture's word. When those words of criticism or crudeness or complaining start forming in your mouth, you think twice about the words that are gonna come out and how that might affect your relationship with God. When you just have a lousy attitude, can I get an amen for those that need to change their attitude? you give your attitude an adjustment. When you're choosing who you're gonna spend your time with, when you're choosing who you're gonna spend your life with, you make sure that your relationship with God is more important than any other relationship. When anger begins to drive your actions and decisions, you find a way to bring that anger under control by the Holy Spirit. When your kids have pushed your buttons to the limits, any amens? You ask God for patience to push through. And you live such good lives that your family 
and your coworkers and your classmates and your neighbors and the people you sit next to in church and the people who your cart bumps into in the grocery store can't help but go, there's something special about that person. That's how we're gonna change the world. That's how we love the 419. You live such good lives. Father, thank you for your word. Your word that calls us to something that's bigger than us, that calls us to be separate, that calls us to be set apart, that calls us to be holy. God, we're not holy because of what we didn't do, and we're not holy because of what we did do. God, we're holy because of what you did, and that you've chosen us and called us, that you love us and that you made us your own. Lord, I pray for the one today that wants to sit in the bounds of your word but is watching the culture swing all around them. Lord, would you give them courage? God, would you give them strength? Would you let them know that when the world is swirling around them, when they see that pendulum moving, that they would have the confidence to say, no, God, because of who you've called me to be, I'm made for better than that. And that they would live such a good life, honoring to your word, filled with your spirit, that by their confidence in you, they would see you and know you. God, help us to live for the long game, for eternity, not just for the culture that swings all around us. Lord, would you help us to be holy? In Jesus' name, amen.